Today's reading comes from Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14, found on page 1156 of the Pew Bible. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he has lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he has purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him, who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were first the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. To, praise the, to the praise of his glory, this is the word of the Lord. So often, the sanctuary becomes a kind of a place where we uh, escape life. So often, the sanctuary and the scriptures become kind of one of the places where we, we go to sort of avoid or deny our lives. And yet, Advent speaks to us about these tendencies. Advent places us right in the very place that we actually find ourselves in our real lives. And that is that we are stuck in between. We are stuck in between the times. We're stuck between where we are and where we long to be. We're stuck between what we see going on in the real world and that vision that is increasing to capture and to shape our imaginations. We're stuck between the fearfulness and our hopefulness, between the present disjointed details of our lives and the deep desires of our hearts. We're stuck between the many sadnesses that we experience and that we witness in the midst of life and in the world and between the time when 
The sources of that sadness and tears, the expression of that sadness, will all be wiped away and removed from reality and from our experience. New Testament theologians are fond of talking about this tension that we live because they actually find it rooted in the New Testament. They actually make the connection between this tension in our real lives and a tension which helps them understand what's taking place in the Bible. And so they talk about our experience as the now of the kingdom, but the not yet of the kingdom. The kingdom has come in Jesus Christ, but, but when we read and when we live our lives, we have this sense that it is not quite here in the fullness that it's supposed to be. Jesus says that the kingdom is within you, and yet we still experience that brokenness and that darkness and that sadness and that longing for something more, something to come to perfection. The main activity of the season of Advent and the main posture of Christian faith in between, the now and the not yet, is waiting. And Advent reminds us of that, that waiting is the posture, but what, what fuels the waiting is the word hope. Waiting's the posture, but hope is the fuel. Hope is the reality. Hope is that sense that what we have promised will, in fact, become true for us one day. And so hope is not a cheap kind of wish fulfillment. Hope is not a cheap sort of sentiment. So much of our Christmas celebrations are filled with, with sentiments sort of taking us into the past and leaving us in the past. What Advent does is it guides us to go back into scriptures, to go back to the beginning of the Gospels, to go back to the stories of the coming of Jesus, which is the first Advent. And, and the spirituality of the Advent season, the spirituality of Advent prayer and scripture reflection is to go back to those early stories of the first coming of Jesus in order to prepare ourselves, in order to be reminded that the characters, Joseph and Mary and Elizabeth and Zechariah and Anna and Simeon and the others, they too were stuck in between. They were stuck in between their reality that Israel was being governed by a foreign power. The powerful Roman Empire, one of the most powerful political empires of all time, was putting its foot on Israel, was placing its governors and its rulers in the places of the priests and the prophets. And when the people looked into the future, all they saw was darkness and bleakness. And so what they did is, is they tried all kinds of attempts, both political and religious, to try to deal with the crushing presence of the Roman Empire in their land. And in fact, as you read through the gospel stories of Jesus, Jesus confronts all of those different ways of dealing with Rome's power religiously 
and politically. There's the Zealots, there's the Pharisees, there's the Sadducees, there's the Essenes, people who lived in the desert associated with John the Baptist. All of these approaches, either embracing Rome, either denying Rome and becoming more spiritual, or either committing themselves to overthrow Rome and through some kind of insurrection. And so we go back to that first coming in order to reread those texts which give us life and give us hope in order so that when Jesus comes again, we will be found ready for him. Mary isn't a little girl in a fairy tale for us. Mary is a woman of faith who is working out that faith in the real world. And so is Joseph, and so is Elizabeth and Zechariah and Anna and Simeon. The Christian year has its reasons, and what it does for us is it takes us back to Advent so that we can begin to ask, and Phil said it really well in his introduction today, that we can really come to terms with the fact that we are stuck somewhere in the middle. That we need to be reawakened to the promise that Jesus is coming again. That he is coming and his kingdom will be here in its fullness and all of the promises of the prophets that didn't seem so real to the people of Mary and Joseph's time because of Rome and doesn't seem so real to us because of the situations that we experience in our culture and in our worlds and even in the darkness of our human hearts will come to be. I, I don't know about you, but, but I'm, I'm looking forward to a day. I'm, I'm, every single day I read the newspaper, I'm longing for the day when human beings will be able to relate to one another without violence being the first or the last I'm looking forward to a day when, when the food, and there's apparently enough food to go around, when that food that we have enough of to go around for everybody, that it actually will be distributed fairly so everybody has something to eat. So not just people around the world, but people in our city, every single one of them will have something to eat. I'm longing for that day when I read about the refugee crisis when every one of those refugees and all of us will be able to arrive at our true home. All of us will be able to sit at that table. When the promise of Jesus' kingdom will not just be a distant rumor, but that it'll be a present reality. And Advent helps us to slow down to work that out. Ephesians 1, which is a book about the church, it's a book about the people of God, but it's a book about the church and the people of God that recognize this same Advent tension. The book starts out with this amazing, beautiful description, really a prayer and a blessing for God's people. And, and, and as it was read this morning, you know, I heard those Phrases, glorious grace, lavishly poured out, the forgiveness of sins, all wisdom and understanding. These are all the gifts of God for the people of God that Paul wants to encourage the Ephesians with. But in this text, there's just a little bit of a slowdown. There's just a little bit of a break that's suggested 
verses 9 and 10. He says, to be put into effect when the times have reached their fulfillment. So there's the suggestion that the times haven't quite reached their fulfillment. There's a suggestion that there's still something to be fulfilled. There's still some kind of maturity. There's still some kind of fullness. There's still some kind of completion that's going to take place. And Paul's a theological pastor who is working overtime in his letters in order to encourage God's people to be ready. There's two little pockets in the first chapter of Ephesians, which are beautiful expressions. And one of my worries, both for myself and for you, for all of us, is that so often we come to these familiar texts, but we don't allow them to somehow shape us and inform us and sort of recapture our understanding. It's like they're old friends that we maybe have taken for granted. But in the carry-on, this is what Paul says in verses 15 and following. He says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord and your love for all the saints, I've not stopped giving thanks for you or remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. And I also pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened that the riches of his glorious inheritance of the saints and his incomparably great power for us to believe. He says, I want to shake your imagination to help you to see how much God has given you. But just before that, in the passage that we, we read that is our focus, he takes a first swing at this kind of encouragement. And he says this, and this is my focus for this morning. Having believed, you were marked with him in a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who was the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption. You saw that. Until the redemption. There's, there's a little bit of a delay. There's a little bit of a gap. There's a little bit of a being stuck somewhere in the middle. Until our redemption of those who are God's possessions to the praise of his glory. The Apostle wants to talk about the Spirit of Advent. The Apostle is talking about the Holy Spirit. For many of us, the Holy Spirit has become a name. For some of us, the Holy Spirit has become a a kind of a category. The Holy Spirit is an idea. The Holy Spirit is an argument. The Holy Spirit is a historical character. The Holy Spirit is a kind of a, a biblical notion. But what Paul says is that the Holy Spirit, the promised Spirit, has sealed us and is also a deposit in us, guaranteeing our inheritance, guaranteeing that hope, making sure that what we have promised we will know is going to come true. Elsewhere, what Paul says is the Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus who is living within us. The promise, the seal, the guarantee. When Paul says that the Holy Spirit is the promise, he 
he, I think, is referring to at least two instances. One, one instance, and we have referred to them in our worship and our liturgy already this morning, he, he's talking about the promise of the spirit of the Old Testament prophets. Isaiah talks about this. We, um, we heard it in our singing, in our choral work today. The spirit is going to be poured out on God's people. The Spirit is going to be poured out on the Messiah, on God's promised one. And then Jesus also promised the Spirit. Remember, he said, I'm going to leave you, but I'm going to give you my friend. I'm going to give you the comforter, and he is going to be with you, and he's going to lead you into all truth. So there's this promise of the Spirit. And then Paul says that the Spirit is a seal. And the, the, the imagery that he's working with in, in the Greek language is that it's the mark of authenticity, the mark of ownership. Livestock and, horrendously enough, slaves in this ancient world were marked physically in the flesh with a seal in order to identify who owned them. And the Spirit has that capacity, that kind, of, that kind of searing us, that kind of sealing us, that marking us as God's children. But the marking of the seal culturally is an external mark. And what Paul's saying here is that God has branded our hearts, that he has sealed our hearts, that he has touched us deeply in the place where no one else can go except for where God resides. There's, there's an experiential thing that's taking place here. This isn't just some kind of cold theological description. This is, this is a kind of warm-hearted, real, personal description of what has happened to us. And then Paul says that the Spirit is the guarantee the word that he uses is, is an ancient trading term. It's the idea of a first installment, a deposit, or a down payment. In modern Greek, the word that modern Greeks use for the wedding ring comes from this word. But the thing is that the wedding ring, or the engagement ring rather, it promises a marriage, but it's not part of the marriage itself. What Paul's talking about here when he uses the word guarantee, he's talking about the down payment. The down payment is more than a guarantee. The down payment is part of the participation of the promise. It's actually starting to live out the reality that's promised. When you give somebody money, when you give them $10 for something that costs $100, you're already starting to participate in that purchase. John Stott says this, in giving him the spirit to us, God is not just promising us our final inheritance, but he is actually giving us a foretaste. Not just an idea, not just an image, but a foretaste. Something that you can taste, something that you can experience, something that is internal to your life and to our lives. One of the interesting things to me that only came to my attention a couple of years ago when I was doing a study 
is how significantly the Holy Spirit figures in Luke's description of the infancy narratives. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, 2, and part of 3, the Holy Spirit shows up everywhere. A baby can't be born without the Holy Spirit, according to Luke. It wasn't Joseph, it was the Holy Spirit. When Mary goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, she's filled with the Spirit, and her baby, who is going to be John, leaps for joy in her womb, maybe the first act of Christian worship, because Mary comes in carrying her own baby, the Messiah. Anna and Simeon, these old people in the temple who have these wise, important, crucial things to say to Mary and to Joseph about the baby, they are filled with the Holy Spirit. Luke Luke actually can't tell the Christmas story without making it into a mini-history of the participation of the Holy Spirit. Which some of you might say, well, that's kind of Luke's style, but it's a beautiful thing that it's Luke's style. That that internal reality, that presence of God with Mary and Joseph, with Zechariah and Elizabeth, with Anna and Simeon, filling them with hope is the same Holy Spirit that Paul says we have been sealed with until the time is fulfilled. Until the kingdom is here in its fullness. And so in that gap, in the middle of being stuck between the now and the not yet, God has given us his very presence in order to help us to live with great hope for that future. In a really fascinating book written just a couple of years ago, by a French political thinker named Dominique Moisey. It's called The The Geopolitics of Emotion, How the Cultures of Fear, Humiliation, and Hope are Reshaping Our World. This is one of the things that Dominique Moisey tries to do. He says, hope is confidence. In the Western world, the notion of hope in the spiritual sense, in in the term of the belief in the salvation of humanity through the redemption of sin. But there is also a secular meaning of the term. Hope is trust in one's own identity, in one's own ability to interact positively with the world. The interesting thing is, when Moisey wants us to think about our lives in the world in a less implicit way, what we're offered when we go back to the Advent and the Christmas text in the first of the Gospels is we get actually an even more explicit expression of God's presence in the world, namely the Holy Spirit, than we've even remembered most days. And so there's this tension about how hope takes place in the world. And and that's what I I want to do with you this morning. What I I want to do is I I want to to see if we can can articulate, if we can do an exercise together in our hearts and in our minds, if we can reflect through the presence of the Spirit in our world so that we we don't have to give up the uniqueness of our story, that we can actually take on our story in a deeper way than maybe we have before. We don't have to give it up to some kind of geopolitical, secular idea of being confident in ourselves in the world. There's a lot of people who are walking confidently in themselves in the world these days, and I just wonder how it's going for us. And so while Moisey wants to argue for something more implicit, more secular, more general, more maybe human, the Gospels and the writers of the New Testament say, no, 
There's a clearness. There's an explicitness. There's a name for that. There's a reality to that. There's a specificity that points to the presence of God, to God's power. Let me work through a few suggestions. The Holy Spirit is this profound internal reality, Paul says. It's a seal. It's a guarantee. It's a foretaste. How do we hear? How do we experience the Spirit? The Apostle writes in the book of Romans, he writes this, that the Spirit himself testifies with our spirits that we are God's children. In the midst of a world going crazy, if you lose that, you lose everything. If you lose at the center of your faith that small voice, that whisper that says that you are a beloved child of God, it's very, very difficult to take the next step. It's very difficult to enter into politics. Very difficult to get up in the morning and go about your work. It's very difficult to sort of plan for the future. It's very difficult to raise children. If you at the, it's very difficult to be in important relationships. It's very difficult to be part of a community like a church. It's very difficult to give yourself sacrificially to other people if at the core of your being, you haven't heard that voice that reminds you how much God loves you. The Spirit whispers to our spirits that we are God's children. For this number of women who were with Betty Reinders on the prayer retreat last Saturday, I wonder if you see in Betty's efforts and in the shaping of the day that she is trying to encourage amongst you this capacity to pray in a way that helps you to listen to the whisper of that voice that speaks love to you, that speaks the love of God. How are we listening to that voice? How are we taking time? Where are we going? What resources are we doing? What style of spirituality are we employing to be able to encourage ourselves to be ever listening to that voice? Another characteristic in Scripture of the Spirit is that the Spirit is a spirit of truth. And so often we're lost in our culture. We just... we. We, we find it frustrating in our culture that, that we can't sort of find enough voices for truth. Sometimes we despair and lose hope that there's just anybody making sense anymore. Well, you, you don't have to go any further than the Globe and Mail Saturday edition here in our country and a book, a book review of a new book called The Givenness of Things by Marilyn Robinson. Marilyn Robinson is the Pulitzer Prize American winner wrote, writing the trilogy that includes um, Housekeeping, Gilead, and Lily. Gilead for which she won the Pulitzer Prize. She's written this book, um, Givenness of Things, and it's a series of theological essays. And the reviewer of the book, the review is called The Divine Writer. The reviewer of the book says, like who other than some kind of writer in the 19th century is able to say the things that she's saying and actually be read? In, in the articles of, of, 
um, Marilyn Robinson's uh, new collection, she says things like this. Listen to this. One of the most popular writers writing today. Who, and Gilead is, is quickly becoming understood and appreciated as one of the greatest American novels of all time. And this is what she writes in her collection. I believe in the divine creation, in the incarnation, in the crucifixion, in the resurrection. I believe in the Holy Spirit and the life to come. Just when you thought there was no sign, just when you thought there was no seal, just when you thought there was no guarantee of the good news of the gospel in our culture going crazy, people making up stuff on their own, believing whatever they want to believe, changing their minds here and there, no foundation for love and life. And such a spokesman like this stands up in that culture and gets published not by a little mom and pop Christian publisher, but by a mainstream New York publishing house and says, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And then goes on in the essays to reflect on the presence of God in culture, in literature, and to describe those tensions that exist in our culture every day. Philip Kennison, in his wonderful, beautiful book called Life on the Vine, Cultivating the Fruit of the Spirit in Christian Community, contrasts realities when he talks about the fruit of the Holy Spirit. We, we memorize the fruit of the Holy Spirit. You know them, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. What Kennison argues is that, that you, can, you can see and witness the presence of the Holy Spirit in communities where the Spirit is living. And he writes about these tensions, and so his chapters go like this, cultivating love in the midst of a market-style exchanges, cultivating joy in the midst of manufactured desire, cultivating peace in the midst of fragmentation, cultivating patience in the midst of productivity, cultivating kindness in the midst of self-sufficiency, cultivating goodness in the midst of self-help, cultivating faithfulness in the midst of impermanence, cultivating gentleness in the midst of aggression, cultivating self-control in the midst of addiction. And he argues that communities where the Spirit is, you can witness the presence of God around these character qualities as people live together in community. And so when you notice communities that stand apart, and I'd encourage you to look for communities, to look for expressions in this community where you can say, ah, the Holy Spirit. Ah, that generosity, the Holy Spirit. Ah, that truthfulness, the Holy Spirit. That unity, the Holy Spirit. That kind of, kind of gentle understanding, that patience, the Holy Spirit. And then there's what I would call heroes of hope. People who just live hopefully, who are to us signs of the Holy Spirit. Friday night, Isabel Louise was born to Andrew and Heather in our congregation. A few weeks before, Bithia was born, and also Jack. You know that some people say that 
hopelessness often issues in childlessness, where there's no hope, where people actually can't see the future, where they can't trust the goodness of the future. There is no way in the world they're going to bring children into that future. But people are still blessed with children. And take note, in this time of hopelessness, when Herod was on the throne of Israel and Caesar was in charge of the world, that at the center of our story, not just one baby, but two babies were born, one to a virgin and one to a woman who was beyond childbearing. In order to be signs of hope that God's kingdom was coming in the midst of Caesar's kingdom. There's generosity. When you're fearful and you don't have true hope for the future, you keep everything to yourself. But if you have hope for a future, you have a freedom to give something away, including something that's important and something that matters. Creativity has got to be a sign of the Holy Spirit. I remember one mission leader speaking in our church many, many years ago who talked about going into a village on his missions, and you could tell if hope was alive, if the spirit was alive in a village, because there would be colorful painting of homes in a hopeful place. There would be the planting of gardens. There would be the color of flowers if hope was alive. If it wasn't alive, there was no creativity. So look for the creativity of the Holy Spirit. People who have plans, if we're hopeless, if the spirit is not living within us, we have no plans, we have no vision. We have no passion. In a hopeless reality, you just can't conjure those things up. Those things have to actually be real. They have to be sealed into you. They have to be a deposit of God's living self in you. And then there's joy. Yale University recently has just received hundreds of thousands of dollars one of the finest universities in the world, received and funded hundreds of thousands of dollars for the Joy Project. They are hiring professors and researchers and writers in order to research the place of joy in, in investing in politics, in cultural anthropology, in relationships, in sexuality, in religion, in spirituality, in education. It is an enormous undertaking, this joy project in New Haven, Connecticut. Because someone somewhere knows that joy, which is a fruit of the Spirit, is an important expression that hope is still alive in our world. Because joy comes from the presence of the Spirit. My real hero of hope is a man named John Duick these days. Some of you may know John. He is the chaplain at Christie Gardens. And he works day in and day out with the residents of Christie Gardens. One of the things that I think when I go and speak at Christie Gardens and lead worship a few times a year, and after I have lunch with John, I, I always get this feeling that John thinks that my work is more interesting than his. I'm here to tell you that it's not true. One day last year, I was giving a talk to this group of seniors in one of the worship services, and I wanted to impress upon them the importance that, that, that God had named them and that God knew their names. 
And so as my illustration in the middle of the talk, I asked John, completely unprepared, I said, John, can you go around the room and tell me every person's name? And it was the most beautiful, beautiful act of gentleness and kindness and thoughtfulness that I've seen in a long time. And John would go behind one person, and this is a community where there's various levels of dementia and Alzheimer's and understanding, and John would, would put his hands on the shoulder of one person and he would speak their full name out. And sometimes he would add a little something about where they came from or what church tradition they came from. For others, he, he, he knelt down and right on his knees with them, and he took his time, and he took their hands, and he looked right in their face, and he spoke their name right into their face. For others, he would put his mouth right up to their ears, and he would speak their name. It was, it was a beautiful, unrehearsed picture of a man who was passionate about his work and filled by the Holy Spirit, just dripping with goodness and kindness and gentleness. And when you see that, when you witness that, that's like a little seal of the Holy Spirit in John. We see that in one another. We look for that in one another. We don't just look to Mary and Joseph and Zechariah and Elizabeth and Anna and Simeon as historical artifacts. No, we look to them as real living disciples of Jesus Christ, people in whom the Spirit was alive and working. That's why they could be open to God's work that turned their lives upside down. That's why they could wait so long. That's why they could accept these interruptions of pregnancy, which we have sentimentalized, but which weren't sentimental realities for them. This Advent season shouldn't be a season of cheap sentiment and even traditional worship where we are just mindlessly singing the words and the songs. The season of Advent when we are really stuck in between, between what we're experiencing and between what we have been taught to long for and to look for and to pray for. Let's do an exercise of hope. Let's let that hopefulness be informed as we recognize the presence and the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promise of God, the seal of God, and the guarantee of our hope. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. In a few minutes, we're going to we're going to sing "Come Thou Long Expected Jesus." Five verses which help us to make the full connection of the Advent reality, the first coming and preparing for the second coming. But before we do that, please join me in prayer.
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit in the lives of Mary Joseph and Zechariah and Elizabeth and Anna and Simeon. We thank you that this story makes no sense without the presence of the Spirit guiding and leading and providing and protecting. We pray this Advent season, this time in our church, Knox Presbyterian Church, Lord God, that you would pour out the Holy Spirit upon us. And even as we, we gather together for various wonderful traditions, a choral service, a carol sing-along, a Christmas Eve service, a serving people by opening our homes and inviting friends from afar to our tables. We pray that as we go through these practices, as we enter into this communal celebration of the coming of Jesus, that you would give us special eyes to recognize the presence of the Holy Spirit in one another and all of us. Give us that special sense of, of hope in the world. Continue to surprise us with your presence. We lift up the newspaper and we see right in the middle of the culture section a book review by one of your beloved disciples, Marilyn Robinson, who you have given a platform to speak her heart, to speak her vision, to speak her faith in ways that sell hundreds and hundreds of books. We thank you for her and we pray that you would protect her and that you would bless her in her writing and in her praying, and in her ministry. We take a few minutes, Lord, in this time of being stuck in between to pray about a situation or an issue or a trend or a person that we're worried about and that we're longing to see some kind of peace and some kind of solution, some kind of goodness arrive. I invite you in the quiet to pray to God for those situations that you're concerned about, that God would bring hope and his presence into those situations. We pray for Tom Gould as she takes time off to recover from her concussion, help her to rest well and to heal. We pray for our world leaders as they're coming together quite often these days to talk about the situations of the world. Give them wisdom, we pray. Give them hearts of justice and hearts of mercy. We pray for all of us in Canada Christian communities, government organizations, community groups, as we prepare ourselves to welcome 25,000 refugees. We pray for our friend Don Nickel. We pray for Izath in this particularly frustrating process of immigration. Give him patience, but help him to wait in hope. We pray for our good friend and missionary David Jeffrey who's been diagnosed with ALS, we ask that you would be near to him during this time. 
Remind him of the presence of the Spirit in his heart and his life. Fill him with hope in the midst of his disease. We thank you for Isabella Louisa. We pray for Andrew and we pray particularly for Heather, that you would strengthen her and bless her and that you would grant Isabella Louisa good health in these days. And we continue to pray for Jack and for Bithia. Signs of life, signs of hope, reminders of the coming of Jesus and John. Lord God, please make our faith in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit come alive to us in our daily lives. Spare us from traditions, spare us from sentiment, spare us from things that just keep you in your place. Instead, open the eyes of our heart, as the Apostle writes, so that we can see you in your real place, in the midst of our lives, in the center of our hearts, in the midst of this community, and in the midst of your creation. Open those eyes of our hearts so that we can see, so that our waiting is not in vain, so that we can be filled with hope for the second coming of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.